Lord, we love you. Oh, we love you. God, I'm asking. These next several weeks, I pray you'd put us on a journey into intimacy. God, you'd draw us into your heart. That we want to know the way you think about us, the way you feel about us, the burnings of your heart as a bridegroom God. So I'm asking that you'd release the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our understanding. I bow my knee to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You, you would grant us according to the riches of your glory. We'd be strengthened with might through your spirit in our inner man. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. We would be rooted and grounded in love. We might be able to comprehend, all of us, all the saints here, what is the width and depth, height, the length, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Give us revelation, Lord. Give us revelation. Good. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start a series on... um, the bridal paradigm of the kingdom. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach this in a way like I've never done it before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish a, 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 a theology for us because we use bridal language often, uh, but we don't have, and we kind of get to know the, the, the cliches, but I don't think we've got as much of an established theology on it as we think we do. And so I want to give that to us in a certain way. It's, I promise you this won't be boring, so don't let the word theology throw you off. But uh, I want to give us verses and build... My point is to build a biblical case. That's what I really want to do, is build a biblical case. I'm not going to take us through a zillion verses tonight, but over the course of the next several weeks, and I don't know how long we'll go. We'll go, you know, 4, 6, 8, 27, something. We'll go several weeks, and uh, we will get a, a, a decent picture of where this comes from and, and how we uh, derive the thoughts about the bridal paradigm. I want to say a few things, just an introduction. You know, the bridal paradigm of the kingdom, it's a, it is a lens or a mentality that we use to view the whole of Scripture. It's a, uh, uh, a way that we approach the Bible. The bridal paradigm is, is just that. It's a paradigm that allows us to see uh, the, the story of the Scripture through a bridal lens, through comprehending who God is as a bridegroom and who we are as his bride. And so, um, you know, people will get confused when we start using bridal language. And men especially, they're like, well, I'm not a bride, I'm a man, and I don't plan on being a bride anytime soon. And, and so the language throws us off at times, but the, the issue isn't um, as much about uh, being a bride or entering into a, a natural reality of, of bridehood, I should say, but the issue is about our relationship to God and His relationship to us. And so that's the lens that we go through is the bridal lens. That's one of the predominant lenses that we use when we approach the scripture and what it says about intimacy and the way that the Lord views us and the way that we're to view the Lord. And so it's a viewpoint. It's a viewpoint that tells us that God sees us uh, as his bride and that we are to see him as our husband. Now that is a massive statement Because most of us, 
um, don't primarily think about God as husband. Uh, we think of him as ruler, master, lord, king, um, all sorts of things. But most of the time when we pray, we don't think of him as husband. Yet, the Bible establishes it thoroughly that he is husband to his people. He is husband to his people. And when we get that in our lens, I mean, everything about the way you live your life changes. Everything about the way you relate to God changes. Because now you're no longer relating to the, um, the slave driver or that king that's off in that palace that's untouchable. Now you're relating to husband. And that is a completely different mentality. So when we come to pray, we're not you know, having to shout at this God that's way far away, this aloof figure, Jesus, you know, this shadowy figure way out there was raised from the dead. He's kind of out there somewhere. We are talking to husband. And when we come, we're coming as the bride, as his betrothed, as the one that he loves. That lens, when we overlay that lens on the scripture and the the system of theology of the entire Bible, when we overlay that lens on the Bible, everything changes. It all changes. And so I want to develop it. Now, the thing about the bridal paradigm is that that term, that phrase, bridal paradigm, it's not specifically a biblical term, but it describes the mentality. It's, it's, you won't find bridal paradigm in the scriptures, but you won't find rapture and you won't find millennium in there either. Those are terms that we use that describe the biblical reality. And so I don't want you to, to get thrown off by that. I want, that to go, uh, I want you to use that term as a, as a tool. And so um, here's the thing. When we realize that God is the one that came up with bridal language, when we comprehend that it was his idea to use the bride and the bridegroom, the husband and the wife, as the example of how he wants to relate with us, that completely should shock our system. In other words, it wasn't the good poet guy who was feeling a little romantic one day when the sun was setting just right, and he pulls a few verses out of context and goes, yeah, God's sort of like a husband to me. You know, it wasn't like that. It wasn't the, you know, sort of the, the misty-eyed little girl who's always, you know, teared up at the romantic chick flick, you know, and just, she's, he's kind of like a husband. It wasn't that. It was God. He's the one that came up with the idea. He's the one that came up with the idea of using that intimate relationship as the standard for the way that he relates to us. It was his idea. That's awesome. You're the one that thought about calling me your bride and calling you the husband? That was, in your mind, it was totally his idea. And see, the reason why I believe he uses that relationship is because it is uh, the most intimate of human relationships, husband and wife. He uses that relationship, and we draw from the experience and the knowledge we have of the, of the natural husband and wife relationship, and he calls himself husband, pointing us to the natural example that he's given us as a template for the relationship that he wants to have with us. He says this most unique Intimate relationship that people share, husband and wife, where the two become one. That most unique relationship, he goes, that's the standard for the relationship that I 
want with my people. He's not the God that's trying to keep us aloof. He's not trying to keep us at a distance. He's not trying to keep us in servitude or you know, slaveship or whatever. He is trying to get us into intimacy. Intimacy. It was his idea to use the terminology. And he gives us the natural example to, to, to illustrate to us what it is that he's wanting to do. And I think that the biggest thing that he's trying to do in, in, in terms of the use of the, of the bridal language is I believe he wants to contrast to us the difference in intimacy that he desires between uh, having a relationship as a husband and wife versus having a, wait, a relationship as a master and a slave. And I think most people revert to, in their mind, they revert to, God is master, I am slave. God is in charge, and I'm just, you know, I just have to do what he wants, and I'll just, you know, it, hell is real bad, so if I don't, you know, if I'll just do what God wants, I don't have to go to hell, and I'll be a slave to God forever. And we think of him as master, and we think of ourselves as slave, and while that's true, hell is bad, and you don't want to go to hell, I guarantee you. His whole idea is so different. He goes, no, I want... I want bridal partnership. I want intimacy in relationship. And you say, well, you know, the scriptures do say, I mean, Revelation 21, 7, it says we'll serve him forever. And we absolutely will serve him forever. But let me ask you something. What does the heart of the God who is love itself, what does he want to be served with? Love. He wants to be served with love. So when we comprehend the bridal paradigm, we use that lens to see where this thing is going. I promise you, you will serve God forever, but you will have the title of bride and you will have the place of priest. And what it will boil down to is this. You will have valid service to the heart of God and your valid service to his heart will be flowing back and forth with him in intimacy and loving on him while you reap the benefits of being loved by love itself without any veils, without any walls, without anything in between. That's where this thing is going. He goes, I want a bride. So our service unto him, yeah, it's service, but it's not that you're the slave of the master, it's you're the wife, you're the bride of God. And your service is abandonment in love. And that's where this thing is going. Hosea 2, he explains it this way. Verse 16. It says, in that day, it shall be, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. You will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. If that can get down in our heart just a little bit, This life is but a vapor. We have natural relationships. We have um, marriage relationships in this life. But in the next stage, they're not given in marriage. But there is an eternal reality that each one of us are going to enter into in Christ. We will enter into this. And it's called the bridal reality with God. We will no longer relate to him as slave or servant in any way. We will call him husband. Husband. That is such a powerful thought of where this thing is going. 
it changes everything because God is not just going to get to the next age and go, okay, all that slavery that I had you in, okay, just press delete on that because now we're going husband. That's not how it goes. What he's trying to do right now is calls us to be wooed and allured and drawn in. I mean, he wants the most dramatic desires of our heart to be touched. He wants us to sense the the greatest amounts of intimacy we can sense with God. We were created for this, that we would know the love of God and we would flow back and forth with love, in love with him. We're created for that and he's wanting that reality to land on us now so that when we step into that next age and when the veils go away, when time and eternity mesh and the flesh leaves and, and, and we were changed into a, into a glorified state that when we look at him and we see him, it's not the stretch to sort of go, husband. We go, husband. We enter into intimacy with him in a whole other way. So he is right now, he's drawing us and alluring us. He's wooing us. He's bringing us to, to know him in, in intimacy. And he wants us to, to enter into that place of love and abandonment now so that our valid service to him for eternity won't be some stretch. It will be the, the natural next step of who we are in that place. Truly married to Jesus. I love the idea that he's the one that came up with it. Something about that just struck me this week as I was meditating on it. It wasn't, you know, the guy, that the poet guy. It was God. God wrote Isaiah 54. He wrote, your maker is your husband. He wrote that. He wrote that. He wrote uh, Hosea 2, 16. He wrote that. You're not going to call me master. You're going to call me husband. He wrote that. That's his idea. The idea that it's his idea is a good idea to me. That blesses me. Because it makes it very clear that I'm not trying to take something and just sort of you know, make it something that it's not. I, I can read it right from his mind and it pierces me. I, and, I, and all it says to me is this. You want me to relate differently to you than as some sort of slave. You want me to relate to you in the most intimate way that I can because you're using the most intimate example I can think of. He's drawing us in to intimacy. When we get that, when we get our minds around that, that we're not slaves, we're not servants, he's not calling you slave. He's not calling you servant. He's not calling you, you know, he's not looking at the sin of your past and saying, harlot, you know, you whore. He's not saying those things. When we understand that he is calling us bride, even in spite of where we've been. It moves us like no other thing there is. Right there in that same chapter in Hosea 2, he says this in verse 19. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice And he says it again, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. He goes and says it three times in just a matter of two verses. He says, I will betroth you to me. Betroth you to me. Now the betrothal, I just want to talk about that for a minute. God's concept is that he wants a people right now who will be betrothed to him until that day when they are married. 
And the, the idea of the betrothal is it's such a unique idea. It is, it is engagement plus. It's more than engagement. In fact, in, in that day, when a uh, young man and a young woman were betrothed, you know how uh, at the end of a, a wedding ceremony right now, the, the preacher will say, um, this is your lawfully wedded wife. You know, they'll, they'll use that terminology. Well, that actually comes from the idea of the ancient betrothal. Because when they were betrothed, before they were married, they said, you are actually the, lawfully, uh, you are actually the lawful wife of this man. And so the betrothal might be a whole year, and that woman was looked at as actually the lawful wife of the man, even if they hadn't consummated the marriage. So the betrothal is engagement plus. It's more than just, you know, this promise. It's the pledge of one's truth is really the language. It's the pledge of one's truth to another. So when God says to you, I betroth you to me, and then he goes, forever. That's a hard thing to break. The ancient betrothal was very difficult to go back on. God says it over you. He says, I betrothed you to me. Not for a week. Not for a month. I betrothed you to me forever. Because I'm serious about you. I'm very serious about you. And the interesting thing about that word... And in the chapter, it's so interesting, and I'll, and I'll get into Hosea 2 more in the, le- the weeks ahead, but in the chapter, he's telling us about Israel's plight with God and how they have gone away and worshipped other gods. They've committed harlotries, and, and, and Hosea's whole life is a prophetic picture. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer, and Gomer is a harlot. He says, go love, another who's been, go love a, a, a woman who's been loved by another. And Hosea marries, this prophet, farmer, marries a harlot. And so he's li- he is the proclamation of what God says. He goes, you know what? Even though you're in your harlotries, I'm married to you. But when God says this about the betrothal, here's the interesting thing. That word betrothed was not the, the term used to uh, patch up a broken marriage. That word betrothed was the word that was used only... When a young man was trying to allure and woo and marry a virgin. He, wasn't, he wouldn't use this term if uh, she'd been married before. And he wouldn't use this term if he'd been married and had problems and there'd been a divorce and he was trying to patch it up. This term, betrothed, was only used when he was trying to marry a virgin. And so God says to the nation of Israel, who's been committing harlotries and demon worship, he says, you know what? It's okay, because I betrothed you to me. I see you as a virgin. You are mine. And how long is this going to last? Forever. And that's what he's saying over us. This is our relationship when we come into Christ. When we come into Christ, we enter into this blessedness of being betrothed to God. And he doesn't see us in our former state. He doesn't see us in our wickedness and our sin. He sees us as his lawful wife. And he sees us as a virgin. And when we come to understand that he's looking at us through this lens, he's looking at us through this lens of betrothal, 
It impacts our soul in a way that nothing else will because this God is burning in desire for his people. He gives us so many illustrations throughout the scripture. I want to point to one tonight. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. I want to look at Adam for a minute. I saw Adam in a totally different light this week. I think Adam gets a bad rap. Kind of like, you know, we just kind of focus, oh, he's that first guy, he blew it for the rest of us, we're kind of stuck. It's kind of where it is. Adam was, he had an interesting little time there. You know, we, we read the, the Genesis 1 and 2 account and we get it fast. We go, you know, yeah, God created all everything, animals, you know, heaven, earth, all things, created man, pulls a rib out, makes a woman. Just a minute later, she's eating an apple, he's eating an apple, bam, they're out of the garden. It's just over. I mean, it's like two days. That's what it feels like. And we just, you know, okay, we do seven in creation. By that weekend, they're out. The next weekend, they're out of the garden. That's how it feels. You read it, it's just like, dang. That was short. It's like the one-week vacation before hell on earth, you know? I mean, it's just bad. But you look at this. I want to paint the picture a little different. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 18. The Lord gives Adam the instruction. 16 says, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll die in that day. In verse 18, he says, and the Lord God said... It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, it's likely that verse 18 is in the same breath as verse 16 and 17. And I believe that Adam heard that. I believe Adam heard verse 18. I believe the Lord gives Adam the instruction, says, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the Lord says amongst himself in the Trinity, says, it's not good for man to be alone. We will make him a helper comparable to him. So Adam goes, there's somebody coming, that's, and helper is a partner, it's a, a companion, it's one to share life with, and it's comparable, one just like him, one that he can have relationship with. You know, for years I heard this term, the King James term, help meet, you know, and people throw that term around, the help meet, and I never understood that. I just couldn't understand why God was calling a wife a help meet. It just didn't make any sense to me. Anybody else ever thought that didn't make any sense? Four of you? Okay, good. I will help all four of you right now. Help meet. The King James is help meet. The New King James is helper comparable. All it means is this. It's using the King James terminology. The word meet means comparable. So when you read it in King James and it says, I will make him a help meet, it's saying I will make him a help and I think there should be a comma there in the English, meet for him, comparable for him. So this idea that we should call the wife the help meet, and then you hear guys and they just sort of, they sort of shift and go help mate. Because it seems like it makes a little more sense. It's not even in the Bible. Help meet is what the, the biblical term is in King James. And the reason why the guy moves it over to help mate is because help meet doesn't make sense in the way that guys use it. Help meet is a help who is meat comparable to him, a helper comparable. Does that help anybody? It helped me so much this week. 
That southern guy that came and goes, yeah, that's my help meet. I was like, what is that? I don't know what a help meet is. All four of you, high five. The rest of you, it's okay. You already knew that. I'm, I'm sure you knew that. Right, okay. So I believe Adam heard that. I believe Adam is, is there and he goes, he's going to make me a helper. He's going to make me a partner. He's going to make me a companion. This is awesome. Something new is going to happen. I'm going to have one ju- comparable to me, just like me. A companion. And so then, here's what happens. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable. I looked at that. I went, now wait a second. How many animals was it? That doesn't sound like that was five animals. He made every animal, the Bible says. Now, some commentators will go, no, it's only the animals in the Garden of Eden. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he brought every animal out of the ground. And he brought them to the man. So I just, and every bird. I decided to figure out how many animals were in the fossil record. Because I wanted to know how long Adam was in there counting animals and giving them names. Because you and me thought that happened in an afternoon, don't we really? We go, you know, he named a few animals, Fido, you know, bird, duck, aardvark. I mean, you know, he's getting down to the end, he's like, aardvark, okay, there, just throw a name out, you know. Platypus, giraffe, lion, eagle, sparrow. I mean, just, you know, whatever. I mean, all the dogs, you know, I mean, he's naming them. And we kind of think, you know, that kind of happened in an afternoon. It didn't happen in an afternoon. There's Adam. Okay, think, just put yourself in his shoes. He's the only guy on the planet. The only guy on the planet. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's perfect. He gets to talk with God. God says, I'm going to make him a partner. And the next thing God does is starts bringing animals to him. I'm guaranteeing you it's in the back of Adam's mind that one of these guys that he's bringing over is the partner. That would only make sense. Now just stay with me here. So I I found out that there are currently in the world right now 9,567 species of birds. But the fossil record tells us there are, give or take, 150,000 species of birds in the fossil record. 150,000. If Adam took three minutes per bird to name each bird. I mean, they're flying. Boom. Blue jay. You know, it takes him three minutes. If, okay, if he... Track me. If he takes three minutes a bird, that would have taken him... 450,000 minutes. That's 7,500 hours. 
That's 312 and a half days to name every bird. And that's if he did not eat or sleep and didn't take off on Sunday or Saturday. So we know he, didn't, we know he took off on Saturday because the Lord, the Lord rested. So if he worked 12-hour days, and I didn't factor in the Sabbath, but if he worked 12-hour days, it took him a minimum of one year, eight months, 15 days, nine hours, 36 minutes. Just to name the birds. Thank God God didn't make him name the insects. Do you know there's over a million insects in the earth today? I'm actually going somewhere with this. You're going to like it. One year, eight months, 15 days, nine hours, 36 minutes. Naming birds. It took him longer because you've got to factor in the Sabbath. So throw 104 more days on there. He's in the two-year range. Two years just on birds. Three minutes each, 12 hours a day. That's a lot of birds. That's a lot of time. The whole time, he's thinking, wasn't there something about a partner mentioned a couple years ago? I I mean, obviously, he was going to give me a partner to help me to name all these animals because this is ridiculous. So there's, so that's the birds. Two years if you figure in the Sabbaths and 12-hour days. And then there's about 4,600 species of mammals in the earth. But the fossil record tells us that there's about 25,000 in the fossil record. 25,000 species of mammals. So if it took Adam three minutes per mammal to name each mammal... It would have taken him 75,000 minutes 12, or 1,250 hours or 52 days if he did not eat or sleep. If he worked 12-hour days, that's 104 days. 104 more days just on the animals. You add in the Sabbaths, you know, he's in the 120-day range, I guess. So Adam is in the two-year, three-month range just naming animals. What's happening to Adam while he's naming every single animal? He's looking at the birds. He's looking at the, the, the cattle. He's looking at the ground animals, the land animals. God didn't make him name the fish. There's thousands and thousands of those. And every one of them, he's thinking about them. He's looking at them. He's considering them, and he's naming them. This job takes him, I mean, you know, let's just call it two and a half years. Two and a half years. And he's wondering, where's the companion? Where's the one that's supposed to be like me? I mean, he gets to the end of it. He, he names the last animal, and he, surely his heart's going, that's it. That's the last one. Uh, isn't there another one? Because something's happening in Adam that at that point he doesn't really get. See, he was created in the image and likeness of God, God, the God who is love. So the God who is in love, who is love, creates Adam in his own image and likeness. And that means this, that Adam has the propensity to love one like himself and to receive love from one like himself. He's wired for love. Not just love with God, but love of another. 
He's wired for it. And from the moment he breathed his first breath, that longing for love was actually moving and growing in him. And God says, I'm going to make you a companion, one just like you, comparable to you. And something tweaks in his heart. He goes, man, that's, that may be what my heart is saying. Two and a half years later, he's named every animal and there's not a helper around. And that thing that began when Adam began to breathe has crescendoed in his heart to a place of volcanic proportions. There is a longing working in Adam at this point that you and I don't understand. What is it like to be the only human on the planet? And the closest thing you have is an animal. Nobody can even talk. He thinks he's got a companion coming, one that's like him. There's not one even close to being like him. The best that can happen is he pats their head and they purr. That's it. No one is even talking. Everyone isn't just like sort of below the bar. They are so ridiculously inferior. They're animals. And his heart is longing for a partner. Why would you do that to him, God? Why would you take Adam, who you walked in the garden in the cool of the day with, why would you take him and put him through this devastating exercise to sort of, you know, it just feels like you just frustrate him at the end. Gets to the end, it's like, what happened? Well, we know that God doesn't leave him there. I mean, God puts him to sleep pulls from his side a rib, and from the rib, he makes woman. And when when Adam sees her for the first time, oh my goodness. We're talking about longing that has crescendoed in his heart over years You know, we're not even factoring in if Adam sort of took a day to sort of play with the dogs. Or, you know, to hang out. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it could have taken him five years. And his heart's aching, beloved. Longing for companionship. Longing for a comparable partner. Longing to give and to receive love. Adam is slain with desire. If you can deal with it, Adam is lovesick. He's walking in perfect intimacy with God. But he is lovesick because God has uh, promised him companionship. Why would God do that to him? Romans 5, 14 says this. Adam... Adam was a type of him who was to come. Adam was being made into a picture of Jesus. God takes Adam through the exercise and creates longing in the heart of Adam that explodes in Adam's being so that when he sees her, he goes, yes, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That wasn't some little side comment. He goes, this is one of me and she is one of mine. She is mine and I am hers. We are together, together. We are one. This is awesome. I mean, he is like excited over this issue. 
What's happened? The longing in his heart is crescendoed in, the, in, in desire, and desire has found its fulfillment in woman. And what's going on? God is making Adam a type of Jesus. He did it to Adam because he wanted to tell you. He wanted to give you a picture of the way Jesus is longing for his bride. Since the beginning of creation, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, longing for a comparable partner. And he's been looking all down through the ages for one that he could give love to and receive love from. This man, Adam, was more than the guy that blew it in the garden. This man, Adam, was the emblem of our husband, Christ. Jesus looks down from the beginning of creation all the way, and he peers down, and he sees at the end of this age a day when his heart will finally be made glad. I don't understand the tension of how that works. He's surrounded in joy unspeakable and full of glory. I mean, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's, he's 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 in beauty unsurpassed. He lived in the earth as the most joyful one that ever lived. And he's he's up there living in joy inexpressible and full of glory. Yet, there's a day when joy will culminate in the heart of God. And you know what that day is? The day that he's joined with you. The day that he's joined with you. Nothing else is going to satisfy him. More universes won't satisfy him. A billion more universes with a billion solar systems, with a billion galaxies that have all a billion solar systems, with billions of stars will not satisfy him. The longing that was in Adam is a picture of the longing of our bridegroom. And here's the deal. He is not longing just for a corporate people. Yes, he wants as many as possible, but you can't believe, you can't live there and believe that it's about the person next to you and not about you. I promise you, it is about you. It is about you. He's longing for you. Your maker He is your husband. He is your husband. So when we comprehend the kingdom through the bridal lens, we understand this, that our Jesus isn't sort of, you know, begrudgingly making his way to the wedding. He has been sitting at the right hand of the Father until the time when he became the sacrifice. And then he's ascend, he ascends and sits back at that place. So for this time he's as a man. A man who is all God. And he sits there aching. And longing. Until the day that the bride is made ready. Comparable. A partner just like him, 
that he can flow back and forth in love with, that he can give his love to, but one that he can receive love from. I promise you in that day, your service to God won't be some you know, ethereal slavehood. It will be, I love you. I love you. And it will release pleasure and delight in the heart of the man, Christ Jesus, that until that day, he's never had that because that's the day his joy is finally made full. We're going to have a good time with this series, beloved. God, let's just stand. Beloved, that's the way he thinks of you. That's what he calls you. Beloved. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you introduce us again to Jesus? The last Adam, the one who has a longing and aching in his heart, like we've never comprehended. Come, Holy Spirit. Testify to us the reality of the love of Jesus, our bridegroom. The reality of the passions of his heart. The reality that he doesn't look at us like a slave or worse, like a harlot. He doesn't look at us like that, but he looks at us as one betrothed and he is longing for intimacy and love. God, I'm asking you would ignite a flame of passion passionate love. Ignite a flame of passionate love comparable to that which is in your son. Ignite it in our hearts. Ignite a flame of desire in us that would be meat. It would be comparable to what's burning in him. Oh God, we want to love your son. We want to love your son. We want to fall in love with your son. We want to know the way he loves us. We want to love him that way. 